Again, good morning, and uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet, again, just want to say, start reading with us, pick up one of these Bibles today, they got a little jacket on, this is mine, I can't stand book jackets, so I get rid of them as soon as I get the book, but uh, uh, pick one of these up, start reading with us in chapter 3, I know many of you are reading along, and I want to encourage that, but I also don't want to discourage those who maybe haven't begun yet, the chapters are not long. The way that they're organized, they're easy to read along with. So grab one. I'll be out in the foyer afterwards if you got questions about it around the round table. And I'd uh, love for you to get one of those and uh, follow along with us. You will not be disappointed by spending more time in God's Word. That is impossible. And so look forward to that. Well, this on the screen that you're about to see is arguably the most difficult jigsaw puzzle in the world. It's called Dalmatians. And I know that as you look at it, the more confusing and bizarre it gets, it's not dogs stacked upon each other. I'm sure it was done with Photoshop. But uh, the puzzle is only 500 pieces. Not a real big puzzle, but why it's considered the, the most difficult uh, puzzle in all the world is that when you buy it, it's printed on both sides. It's a two-sided puzzle. And so you might have the right piece in your hand after staring at one little section of the puzzle for a long time, but you might actually have the wrong side. Now, I don't know if you're into jigsaw puzzles. My wife is into them every once in a while. When it comes around the holiday time, she starts doing puzzles. I think they're, I, I really don't enjoy them. Uh, I do like to have the last little piece, so I do like to kind of walk by the table and put that piece in my pocket. And then come back later and go, oh, look who finished the puzzle, you know. You might be that way as well. But even if you are a puzzle junkie, or even if you do like jigsaws, or don't, we all know this, right? How do you solve, how do you finish a puzzle? Well, our strategy is always the same. Maybe it's a little bit different detail here or there. But our strategy to finish a jigsaw puzzle is to look at the big picture. You don't solve a puzzle. You don't solve... Something like this Dalmatian picture by looking and staring at the little pieces. You solve it by looking at the big picture over and over and over Now when we get to Scripture, a lot of us come to Scripture maybe with this idea that it's as confusing as this picture. I mean, the Bible's intricate. It's detailed. You've probably seen this photo before. This graph. This is a graph of Every one of those white lines at the bottom represents a Bible, a book in the Bible, or a story in the Bible, a section of Scripture. And this is a graph of every way that Scripture cross-references itself. I mean, it's an incredible graph. This is a great infographic, isn't it? It's almost awe-inspiring. The longer you look at this, the more you go, oh my goodness. How could something be this interconnected and woven together? And sometimes that can make us feel a little bit intimidated. Sometimes that can, we can come to Scripture and we can go, man, I, I can't get it. It's like that Dalmatian picture. But I want you guys to take the same advice. Look at the big picture. When it comes to Scripture, it is detailed. And it's got this depth and it's got this breadth and it's got this ability to overwhelm us. But yet, when we turn our attention to it, just like that puzzle what we see is a big picture that puts it all together. 
God's story is not purposely difficult. It is a story that looks to the coming of Jesus. It's put together all of it into one seamless story that leads to Jesus so that you can, when you trust the story, put your life in that scene and put your life together in God's story. And today what we're going to get to look at is one small story that beautifully describes the whole story. And in your reading this week, it's the story of Abraham and his sons. It's Genesis chapter 22. If you're in the story this morning, you can follow along on page 19, that's where it begins, and it's on the screen here. The story begins like this. We're going to jump right into Abraham's life. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, because we're jumping 10 chapters into a really 13, Abraham's story begins in Genesis 11. I want to catch us up. We're jumping right into the middle of this. And Abraham and Sarah have already gone through a series of ups and downs. So a quick recap, Abraham, or Abram, is called from an area of ancient world, of ancient Mesopotamia, called Ur of the Chaldeans. There, we're not even sure if he really knows Yahweh, the God who will become the God of Israel. But he's called by God, the God of Israel, and he leaves this place, this pagan world. He leaves his family, his father's household, his brothers, everything he knows, and he goes to a new place. In this call by God, God calls him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and says, I'm going to bless you. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. But eventually, your descendants will be great and every, every nation on earth will be blessed through you. Now this is quite the call. But in Abraham's story, there is already a problem because when he receives this call, he is childless and he's 75 years old. And his wife is old as well. It's like an old couple saying your life is all just now start about to begin. It's all about to start. Life goes on from there. Abraham has ups and downs. He makes mistakes. He lies about his wife and her identity twice. He ends up trying to speed up the story and this promise that he will have children by sleeping with his wife's servant, Hagar, and has a child with her, a boy named Ishmael. There's ups and downs. But by the time he's 99... God comes to him again and says, you will have a child within a year. And at a hundred years old, he has his son, Isaac. And it would be great if you could just wrap it up there. If the story could wrap up before chapter 22 on the screen, it would be great that yes, Abraham and Sarah had a child and everything, you know, like a 80s and 90s sitcom. Everything was wrapped up in 30 minutes, right? Right? Whatever happened to... Right? Like Full House, right? Or the Cosby Show used to be. But that's not the way it wraps up. Because the story from there actually gets even stranger. And if you're new to the Bible, or maybe you've heard this too much that you can't hear it, this is a bizarre twist. This guy who was promised 
to be the father of many nations. Your descendants will be, as Tim talked about, there are children, as many as the stars are in the sky, is now requested by this God who called him. God calls him to do something else. He says, I want you to go into the church. And I want you to go, and I want you to take your son, and I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him. It's weird. But the question we all ought to be asking when we come to this passage, I know that if you're new to Scripture, you probably get this, and and I'm a little jealous because you get this a little bit quicker than some of us who've been around Scripture. Sometimes we take this as probably we take this and we don't hear the, the details. Because the question we ought to be asking is what kind of a God would ask a man like Abraham to sacrifice his son? Remember the stories about God, so the question has to focus on God. Why would God do this? What kind of a God would make this happen? Who would request this? That's the question. Is this God a monster? Is he a kid on an anthill trying to inflict pain? Is he just trying to test him so much? Who is this God that we're being introduced to early in the story? And why would this God command Something as abhorrent as child sacrifice. I want to get to that answer. I wrestle with that. So I want to deal with that by looking at the entire human history of religion. You guys want to go on that journey for a second? You're like, ooh, that doesn't sound like a second kick. That sounds like an hour. Let's do it in just a few seconds, okay? Here's the entire history of religion so far. Almost every religion has been built on the premise that there are unseen forces who are out of our control. And as prehistoric humans, and in the time of Abraham, which wasn't prehistoric, but close to it, this was a big deal. Prehistoric humans needed to survive, so much so that it didn't take long for humans to realize that if we had too much water on our crops, they would die. If we didn't have enough water, then we wouldn't have enough food, and the crops would wilt. Sometimes you had something good, sometimes you didn't. Some years everything went according to plan, and others didn't. So much was out of control. So early people began to believe that something or someone was behind the scenes pulling the strings, causing calamity or causing good harvest. They started to call those the bells and the asherahs and the Marducks, and the Nonas. And they began to call those, what we call them, as gods. Little. Now belief then arose around those unseen forces that for some reason these unseen forces are against you or they are for you for some reason. Now, we think we've evolved past this, but we still use this language, right? Some of you will go out golfing, and you may not say it, but you will know this. You'll say, well, the golf gods were against me that day. Right? Or in basketball, the golf, the basketball gods, well, the golf gods aren't against you in basketball. It's the basketball gods that are against you that day, right? We still speak in those languages. Religion, for the most part, in the history of it, has been about answering the question, how can I get unseen forces, these little G gods, on my side? Right? So what do I do? Well, I've got to appease them. If there are unseen forces at work making my life easy and successful or not, here's what I've got to do. 
If they're controlling the harvest, I better figure out what that harvest God wants. If they're controlling the rain, I better figure out what that rain God wants. Because I want it to work in my favor. I want good things to happen to me. And this is where it gets messy. Because what happens to you if you do everything right and you're believing this worldview that I've got to get everything right I want to get these gods on my side, but yet your livestock still dies that next year. Or your crop fails. What do you do? Well, the next step is what we would all think. Well, I didn't offer enough. Right? I didn't do it right. I didn't go through the motions enough. You would conclude that you didn't do it right or enough. Because this type of religion has always been about what we call position. The history of human religion so, so far has for the most part been about I need to position myself with the gods because I never know where I stand with the gods. These gods are angry. The gods are demanding. If I don't please them, they're going to get me. I'll bring calamity on myself and my family. And there is never enough. Now start to think through where that goes. Because good or bad, if you're living in that system, the answer is always going to be, I never could do enough because these gods never can get enough. So you offer 10%, or you offer a crop, or you offer a goat, or you offer a pigeon, or you offer a cow. And if that did not work, you offer two cows, or you offer three. But if none of that works, guess where this goes? You offer your livelihood, you still have a dream. But then it gets into the dark stuff. None of that works. I better position myself and the gods are maybe demanding me to offer a child. And of course, that's actually what happened. If you go back to Abraham in Genesis 11:31, we find that Abraham is from an area called Ur of the Chaldeans. That is ancient Babylon. It's a world of sacrifice and pagan religion. This is his world. It's a world where even children were sacrificed, offered up to please the gods, because those gods never said, that's enough. You did it. Those gods always said, you got to do more. Now notice this in verse 3 of the passage. We'll get back to it here. Early next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. So he's been... God has come to him and says, I'm going to send you to a place that I'll show you. Take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him there. So early the next morning, Abraham gets up. He loads his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him. Now here's what I want you to notice. Have you ever noticed that Abraham doesn't question child sacrifice? He's not surprised by God's command or request. He isn't shocked. He doesn't say, well, that's not who you are, God. He doesn't protest. He doesn't drag his feet. Just gets up the next morning and he goes. He knows what to do. When a God asks for child sacrifice, Abraham's like, sure, I know what that's like. Why? Well, this is a pretty cool piece of archaeology. We actually know this is the ziggurat of Ur. This is dug up. It's a 4,000-year-old 
Mesopotamian answer to the Egyptian pyramid, and we know for a fact that on this place, the Sumerian god, Nana, N-A-N-N-A, which we named grandmas after now, Nana or Nana, N-A-N-N-A, if you're called Nana, I don't, I'm not trying to insult you this morning. If you're called Nana to an ancient Sumerian, you wouldn't be grandma. You would be the worst, the moon god of the Sumerians, okay? But uh, that's supposed to be a joke. That was terrible. All right. That's the way my humor works. I think that's hilarious. Anyway, hey, Nana. Yes, the moon god of Sumeria. Anyway, all right. But this is Nana's ziggurat. And we know for a fact on this ziggurat, this was a place of child sacrifice. Where does Abraham grow up? Where does he spend the first 75 years of his life? So why does Abraham all of a sudden not question God? He just gets up and goes. Yes, he trusts God. Yes, he has faith in God. But he's already been bathed and born into a system that believes the gods with little g make demands of what is most valuable. So the story goes to Abraham, Isaac, and some servants go on a three-day journey, hint, hint, where God has told him, your son's as good as dead. Hint, hint, about later stories. And the story picks up here, and it says, on the third day, Abraham looked and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Now notice this, we will worship and we We'll come back to you. I don't know if Abraham knows something we don't. I don't know if Abraham's just betting the farm and saying, I think this is all going to work out. We do know that God said, go sacrifice your son. But Abraham here in this passage says, no, we're going to come back. We, me and my boy, we'll be back. I think what's actually happening in these two verses is the story is tipping its hat to you saying you need to understand something about God. Because again, the story and the question we should be asking is what kind of a God would do this? So let's keep going, verse 6 through 8. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here. Isaac said, but where is the lamb to burn up? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb to burn up. And the two of them went on together. And what a question. Abraham and Isaac walking along and his son's like starting to pick up on this. Like, what's going on? And Abraham gives him a non-answer kind of answer. It's going to be all right, son. Right? Just like kind of we do as parents to our kids sometimes where we really don't know what's going on next, right? But what do we say? It's going to be okay. Right? We really have no clue what tomorrow may bring, but we're going to, it's going to be all right. Let's keep going to the climax of this story. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood. He bowed his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. 
Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of the son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. No matter if this is your first or hundredth or thousandth time to read Genesis 22 or hear it preached, this is an incredible story of Abraham being willing to offer him up. He's ready to do that positioning, I think. I think there's a little bit of paganism still in Abraham. I think he's like, that's what the gods demand. That's what the gods do. That's what I'll do. But here is what happens. Instead of an ending in child sacrifice, God steps in. And I have to believe up to this point, Abraham is sold on the belief that the gods will take whatever they want because there is never enough. You can never give them enough. They're never appeased. But the question of what kind of God would ask a man like Abraham to sacrifice his son is answered here at the end of this story. Because the answer is, not this God. Amen? That's what's happening. God steps in in this moment, and instead of the human saying, is there never enough, God steps in and says, that's enough. That's enough. The answer to the question is not this God. God is not a God who demands child sacrifice. Now you may be saying, well, Jake, yes, he does. It's right there in the text. The Bible said it. I believe it. That's That's not the point of the text. Why doesn't God just tell Abraham that? Why doesn't God just say, hey, by the way, I want you to know me a little bit before. It's Yahweh. It's on my my Facebook profile. Yahweh, I don't demand child sacrifice. That's not the way it works. Why all the drama, right? Well, think about it this way. At first, in the story, God appears to be a lot like all the other gods. The gods that Abraham knew in Ur or Babylon. The gods that we know in America. The gods that demand. The gods that are always demanding and never satisfied. But this story takes a shocking turn. This is not a God who says you can never offer him. This is a God who says, I will provide what is enough. I will give you exactly what you need. God gives to Abraham a sacrifice. God supplies exactly what the moment demands. And this is why we need this story so much. Because after 4,000 years, give or take three, 400 years, we haven't changed much. We think we have. We always think the next generation's got it figured out, right? But we still hold on to these tightly held beliefs about religion, even as Christians sometimes, that match the ancient people of earth. We're still pagan in some sense. We're still like Jacob from our reading this week, who wants to bargain and make deals with God to get what he wants, right? Who wants to send his least-like wife and kids out in front. Maybe they'll get killed and then Esau will be worn out by the time he gets to me. And my favorite wife, Rachel. Right? You guys pick up on that? Man, he's a scout. And my parents named me after him. But anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway, they knew something. I guess. I don't know. But we still believe that. We still believe that we can position ourselves with God in order to get what we want. Let me step on some toes, as my own included. That we still believe that if I just pray the right words, God will have to do what I ask. Or if I pray just in the right order, if I get a certain number of people praying, God will have to move on my behalf. We still believe that when we gather and we do things in the correct order, in the right way, according to what we've been taught about Scripture, whether that's tradition or Scripture or not, it really doesn't seem to matter to us, then God will have to have favor on us. That is just pagan positioning. We're trying to get God on our side. We all still struggle with the deeply held belief that God is angry and He's trying to get us and we've got to appease Him and if we mess up, we better watch out. But that's not the story. And some of us still think, well, in the Old Testament, God was angry and then all of a sudden He just had a better day in the New Testament. That is not the story. You guys notice this. That is not the story. Early on here, in the book of Genesis, at the beginning, the story isn't about what Abraham is willing to do for God. The story is about what God is willing to do for Abraham. You see that? It's God saying, I'm going to send you to a mountain, and that mountain is going to be the Mount Moriah, the mount where I provide. This is not a story about Abraham being demanded to give. It is a story about Abraham being invited to trust. Do you trust a God who's enough? That's what the story is about. To have faith, to trust. Faith is not head belief in English. It is faithfulness. It is trustworthiness in the one we trust in. It's to believe and follow the one who provides. And the story is beautiful. Because I'm not Mariah. Where God provided for Abraham and Isaac, this same mountain range, a thousand years later, after this moment, David purchases this spot from a guy named Aruna who has a threshing floor on this spot. And the angel of the Lord appears to David there on this spot as well. And David says, this is going to be the spot where I'm going to build an altar that will become the temple. Fast forward another thousand, eleven hundred years from there, and it's that same mountain range, Mount Moriah, that another sacrifice is made. Not one of a ram this time, but by God Himself. By Jesus Christ. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now don't get it backwards. Religion always says, the history of religion is summed up in five words, give in order to get. But Christ says to us, the story of God says, you have received all you need. God is enough. And God is calling us out of Genesis 22 to have the trust of Abraham. To say, you know what, God? I'm going to trust what you say. So if you were to visit the oncology floor at the University of Michigan Hospital, it wouldn't be long before 
you were to go through the waiting room or even sit with some of the cancer patients, it probably wouldn't be long on this hospital floor before people began to tell you about how grateful they are for a lady named Candace Walker. Candace works here at the oncology floor, and she sees her job working with cancer patients as her mission. And her mission is not only to protect the weak immune systems of those who are receiving cancer treatment, but also she sees her mission as I want to protect the fragile state that people are in and their families are in as they go through cancer treatment and chemo and radiation. So I want to, she says, I want to help protect the fragile state of their emotion. And she calls her floor at the University of Michigan Hospital the House of Hope. Candace is often the first one to console families when their loved ones begin treatment. She shows up often with bagels and coffee and some other days donuts. She takes time to sit with patients, telling them stories about her life, making them laugh. She has this great way of connecting with people. One day, it was Candace who saw a patient come up in the elevator, and the elevator doors opened, and there was a woman in the fetal position writhing in pain on the floor of that elevator. Nobody knew whose patient she was. Staff members didn't know what to do, but Candace took charge. She rushed to the woman, got her set up in a wheelchair, and then got her to the correct floor. The patient later said, Candace Walker saved my life. She's my angel. Candace Walker makes the oncology floor a house of hope for untold number of people. But Candace is not a doctor. She's not a nurse, she's not a social worker, nor is she a grief counselor. Candace is the floor's custodian. And she lives by a three-word motto. God is enough. She trusts. And this morning, that's what we're being called to do. To be people who realize that this God is not the God who's saying, I'll make demands of you, and then I'll give you blessing if you meet all my demands. That's not who this God is. He's a God who says, no, I'm going to provide for you all you need, all you will ever need, and then, how about you respond to that grace? That's the Christian story. That's the story we're trying to That tomorrow you're going to be faced with difficulties. That this next week you're going to be faced with other difficulties. That with the things that are in front of you, you're going to hit moments in your life of downtimes and valleys. And God is enough. But you've got to let him. So this morning we challenge it. I challenge it to be invited into that. Whether it's the things you're going through whether it's the frustrations you're feeling, whether you're disappointed in the way that life is, remember that God's enough. And if you need to be reminded of that this morning, if you need to have prayers over you, if you need to be introduced to Jesus through baptism this morning, saying, I'm done with living out this world that just makes demands of me, and participating Jesus into his beautiful burial, death, and resurrection. We have that as well. Let's stand together and let's sing.